You're about to listen to Office Hours with me, Georgia Howe. This is a weekly companion series to PragerU's popular five-minute videos, where I explore various political and cultural topics with PragerU experts, asking questions and digging deeper to bring you perspectives that you may not hear in a traditional college classroom. To watch the video version of this series, click on the link in the description or go to dailywire.com. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm Georgia Howe with The Daily Wire. Today, we sit down with psychoanalyst, parent guidance expert, and author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, Erica Commissar. Her new PragerU video is titled, Why Even Atheists Should Teach Their Children About God. She gives a compelling argument for why parents should teach their kids about God, even if they themselves are non-believers, and it has nothing to do with salvation. Let's jump right in. Erica, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Georgia. So you have a really interesting and almost audacious suggestion for non-religious parents. And I think it it might be kind of a, a scary argument for some atheists, but I'm hoping they'll hear you out. So you want parents to pretend to believe in God for the sake of their kids for clinical reasons, not for religious reasons. Can you tell us why? Well, there's several reasons why, um, actually. And it's it's not just my thinking or my opinion. It's based on a, a Harvard study, a 2018 Harvard study that came out that said that children that attend religious services or have faith and are raised with faith um, and who attend services at least once a week uh, are, are more protected from mental illness and have a higher quotient on the happiness scale, you'd say, uh, of well-being. So um, I'd like to say it's my opinion, but it, it really, there's research to back it up. Um, but basically, it does a few things. Belief in God is protective, and it's calming uh, in regards to all of the things that children face today. Um, the belief that there is someone that is protecting you or something that is protecting you um, you know, in a world where there are broken families, where there's school violence, where we hear about global warming all the time, uh, where parents are more distracted than ever, um, you know, it, it is a it is a, a bomb against all of those things. Um, and what I say to parents is that loss is a very hard thing for children to deal with. So we say reality is overrated. Um, and when we, you know, have a, an atheistic or dust to dust uh, belief system. It may work for us as adults, but it doesn't work for children. Um, children need to believe. They need to use their imagination uh, and believe in something um, like heaven or however you imagine heaven uh, to be able to cope with the intensity of the loss. Um, and there are other things as well. Um, gratitude and empathy uh, are things parents are always asking me as a parent guidance expert, how do you instill gratitude and empathy in children? And I say, well, there are many ways to do that. It is that you are more grateful yourself and more empathic. But all faiths that I know of um, promote gratitude and empathy as part of the faith. So, um, you know, as part of the texture of the faith, they promote these things with community service, you know, children that attend as part of that study, it said that children that attend at least weekly services are more likely to volunteer. They're more likely to participate in community service, which promotes things like gratitude and empathy. Um, in addition, community 
is a very important part of faith. And we know that children are really, they have many more virtual friends today because of social media than real friends. And we know that real friends are more important and that real community is lost today. Uh, And finally, mindfulness. Um, You know, we know that faith tends to, you go to church, you go to synagogue, you go to the mosque, you have to calm your body. You have to have a presence of mind. And we're always talking about these things. We talk about, we pay lip service to gratitude and empathy and and mindfulness, but in religion or faith, it's actually embodied. And does this apply to any house of worship? Or do you recommend, I mean, would you tell parents to just choose whichever one works for them? I mean, most people choose what they've grown up with, but that's not everybody. You know, it, it, as long as it's it's a faith that believes in a protective and calming um, and guiding force, it, it doesn't matter what religion it is. And is your argument primarily for religiously ambivalent parents, or do you even suggest this for parents who are sort of devout atheists as well? I'm talking to everyone because you can be also, you can say you have, you know, you have faith or, you know, but you don't really live it. And if you don't live it and you don't show joy in living it, then it's not passed down to your children. So, you know, if you go to services and you get something from it as a person, obviously your children are going to get more from it. But even if you don't, um, you know, and it's why I say if you don't believe in heaven, um, you know, lie. I mean, that was, it's a very, it was a very controversial statement in a piece that I wrote for the Wall Street Journal. But basically what I was saying is you cannot just, children cannot handle the raw truth of dust to dust. It's not, they need healthy defenses to cope with loss. So that was one of my next questions is, what does this actually look like in, in practice? So you're saying sort of controversially to straight up lie about it. What about attending church? Would you say that as well? Or- how, do, how does this actually look in practice? I think most parents that I work with, um, you know, when I explain to them that their children can't handle uh, nihilism, which is believing in nothing, and they have to create, and listen, it, you know, if you don't have a religion that you follow, you have to create a, a version of heaven um, that helps children to cope with loss. You know, the idea that that we don't just end uh, the finality of it is not bearable to children. And the idea that when we lose someone, um, we will see them again in some beautiful place. I mean, you can create whatever narrative you want, but it has to be a narrative that isn't nihilism. That isn't grandma is worm food right now. That's it. You'll never see her again. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you also noted that there's rising levels of depression and anxiety among kids and you suggest that that may be linked to declining religious attendance. Do we have evidence to suggest that that's the case? Yes, it was part of that study. Um, there were there was lower incidence of in the five thousand uh, teenagers that were part of the study, the Harvard two thousand eighteen study. Uh, there was lower incidence of um, mental illness and behavioral problems. Um, in those children who were participating and uh, engaged in some kind of spiritual or faith-based upbringing. So yes, there is actual research to show that uh, children have a a lower incidence of mental illness and a higher incidence of well-being when they're raised in some kind of spiritual or faith-based community. And you've also written extensively on resilience. 
So you've made a case for why a belief system is important for resilience, but what other factors contribute to resilience and how can parents instill that in their kids? Presence. Um, I have a book coming out in October uh, called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, um, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. And it basically talks about the fact that adolescence is what we call the second critical window of brain development. Right brain development is responsible for things like emotional regulation and resilience to stress. And as parents, we have another opportunity from nine to 25, which is what adolescence is. Um, The first critical window being my first book, which is zero to three, you know, that's the most influential window where parents have a a great opportunity to make a difference in their children's ability uh, to, to, to be able to regulate their emotions in the future. But we know now through all of the brain sort of research, the neuroscience research, that adolescents, nine to 25, parents have a great impact on children's right brain. And that means you have another chance. If you miss the first opportunity, you have another chance to make a real difference in terms of promoting uh, resilience to stress and emotional regulation uh, in your children. So when you say presence, what does that actually mean pragmatically? Being around. Being around physically and being present emotionally. Being a good listener in a very practical way. And there's a lot of practical things in my book, but the idea is being being there physically as much as possible. And you know, a lot of parents of adolescents think, oh, my kids don't need me anymore. They're teenagers. They don't seem to need me, but they do need you. They need you more than you think they do. Um, and they need you in a way that I call when the door opens, because teenagers have defenses, meaning they shut the door literally, but they also shut the door uh, in, in other ways. And when they open the door and they give you an opportunity to come in uh, and be a good listener and participate and communicate with them uh, and help them. If you are not around physically when that door open opens, it closes again right away and you have to wait till that door swings open again. So parents feel that they can parent on their own time and they can't. They actually have to be around enough of the time so when the door opens, they're present. Um, so it means physical presence. It means emotional presence. Uh, it means that as parents, we can't be in a distracted state. We can't be on our computers or cleaning the house or washing the dishes or making a meal um, while we're communicating with our teenagers. We really need to be listening and be present and participate in that relationship. So those are just some of the things that that parents can do. So it sounds like it, you need to certainly log a lot of hours of being physically present with your kids. But when you're physically present with your kid, you have to be also mentally present so that you can sort of catch those cues of a door of vulnerability being opened so that you can take advantage of that moment and not miss it because you are doing something else. And you still have to regulate their emotions, meaning by helping them process their experiences as teenagers. I always say that being a teenager is trauma. It's just trauma by the nature of adolescence being a kind of trauma. It is a transition in life that is both physical and emotional and really hard on them. And it's hard on them socially, too. And so, you know, they need to process a lot and they can't do it on their own, even if they seem to be able to do it on their own. And so that means parents have this opportunity to help them process those emotions, process those experiences, and help them to understand, you know, how to regulate those emotions in the future. You talked about an earlier window as well, zero to three. What goes on in the zero to three window? From zero to three, it's the biggest window of brain development. 85% of your right brain develops in the first three years. And 
your brain is very susceptible to um, the environment. And so parents have the biggest impact in those years. Parents from moment to moment need to soothe their their babies, their infants and toddlers um, in distressed states. And that's from moment to moment. Children are throughout the day getting into distressed states. And when we regulate those, when we soothe them from moment to moment and show empathy towards them, um, what it does is it brings them back from being too low or too high with their emotions to a state of what we call emotional homeostasis. And if you do that consistently and you're consistently present for the first three years, it gets internalized. And so by three years of age, that child can start to regulate their emotions on their own. But it's that repetition from moment to moment of soothing them, um, even, even, even regulating excitement. I mean, children don't only need things like sadness and anger regulated. They also need excitement regulated when they're really little. Um, and so it's that consistent presence that helps children to build their right brain and lays the foundation for emotional regulation and being able to deal with adversity in the future. Have you had parents who were very atheistic who took your approach? I mean, have you followed families to see how this works? Usually parents, when they hear what is behind, that there is a, a really important reason for their child's state of mental health, um, they, they can understand and cooperate and develop a narrative that works for them. Um, it may be going to church or synagogue and, you know, adopting the religion they're born with, or it may be having a spiritual narrative that they create. But I would say most parents are not resistant once they realize that what may be good for them is not good for their young children. Erica, we're just about out of time, but where can people find you online and where can they find your books? So they can find me at www commissar.com. It's K-O-M-I-S-A-R.com. And both of my books are sold on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and every other online bookstore and in bookstores. Uh, and the second book is out in October. Erica, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Georgia. As a reminder, if you'd like to see the video version of this show, or if you haven't seen this week's PragerU five-minute video, make sure to click on the link in the description below or head over to dailywire.com. We'll see you next Monday for a new interview with another PragerU presenter.